I love Jeremiah 31 because it's a monumental stake in the ground in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, I believe every Christian should know Jeremiah 31 and what it's about. It's, it's Christianity 101, maybe, maybe it's a higher level, uh, 104, 103, I don't know. Uh, but it, it is something that I think every Christian should know and it's something new. You know, that old phrase, out with the old, in with the new. There's something nice about that. Uh, some of you are thinking that, especially in 2020. Out with the old, in with the new. Hopefully 2021 brings a new year with uh, new joy and new blessings. Uh, 2020 for a lot of people was really difficult and hard. Uh, but as it turns out, uh, we have a text that brings something massively new and it's not just a new year. Um, it's not just a new situation. It's called the new covenant. The new covenant, Jeremiah 31 uh, is where you read about the new covenant. Now, something like, okay, this is just doctrinal stuff. You know, pastors talk about theology and doctrine. This is gonna be boring. Well, it is gonna be work, I'll warn you. We got some work to do this morning. But I hope that you, you, you see that the, the whole story of what God is doing is kind of summed up in the old covenant and the new covenant. Um, the word covenant can be interchangeable with the word testament. Uh, it's not just the Old Testament and the New Testament because, because we're gonna learn about the new covenant, the New Testament in the Old Testament here in Jeremiah 31, 31. Uh, it's an important thing for us to sort of nail down to know what the new covenant is all about. There've been people who've made mistakes because they don't get the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. What do you mean, Brett? Well, for example, when maybe you're, teenager, uh, you're a teenager and you wanna get a tattoo and your mom, she busts out her Bible. <laughs> you're like, mom, I wanna get a tattoo. And you're like, oh, the Bible forbids it. Um, well, uh, I can see where mom's coming from and, and man, you can make the Bible say anything, by the way. Um, uh, there's all kinds of scriptures that talk about a lot of things. But tell me, does the Bible prohibit getting tattoos. Let's take a look. Well, I'll just, I'll just tell you what the scripture is. All you parents are writing frantically down. Um, it's, <laughs> this, is where, this is where everybody gets the Bible. You're not supposed to get tattoos. Um, it's Leviticus 19. It says um, in Leviticus 19 verse um, 26, I'll start there. It says, you shall not eat anything with blood, neither shall you use enchantment or observe times. You shall not round the corners of your heads, neither shalt thou mar the corners of your beard. You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor print any marks upon you. I am the Lord. Did you hear that? You're not to put any marks upon you. So grandma busts out that verse. There it is. You can't get a tattoo. It's not just mom who makes the mistake here. It's also, remember our former president, Barack Hussein Obama? Do you remember when he said derogatorily, he said, he said, what are we gonna do, follow the Bible? Do you remember this? Anybody remember this? He said, what are we gonna do, follow the Bible? He says, are we gonna take our child outside of the city and stone him to death? Now, was he correct in saying that that's what the Bible says? Well, just like mom is correct in saying, you're not supposed to put a mark on your body. Um, and, but, if, but it also gets kind of crazy if you think about it. Did you hear what it said? You guys with, with the, when it says, you're not supposed to cut the corners of your beards. In other words, you guys that are wearing goatees right now, you're pretty much Satan. <laughs> Satan has a goatee. I've seen the deviled ham can. It's, he's, he's a little red guy with a, with a goatee. So that's why you're not supposed to go. That's ridiculous. 
You see, what we're talking about here, and when you're reading the book of Leviticus especially, is you're talking about the law of Moses given to the Jews there at Mount Sinai when they left Egypt. The law of Moses is the Jewish law. And guess what? Newsflash, grandma, you need to know this, mom, Barack, whoever's quoting the Old Testament saying, you gotta follow what this says. Guess what? That's the Old Testament law. That's the old covenant, the law for the Jewish people. And praise be to the Lord, you and I are no longer under the law. Can I tell you how happy I am that we're no longer under the law? I'm happy because I would have been dead at one. I would have been the child they had to take out, take that kid out and stone him to death. Uh, he's really bad. Uh, let's put him out of our misery. Um, you know, that would have been me and probably some of you. And there's all kinds of stuff we'd have to forsake. For example, bacon. Can you imagine life without bacon? That was the Jewish situation. By the way, I, I tried something a little different this year. I took my prime rib for you know, Christmas Eve, um, 20 pounder, the, the uh, elder board gave me uh, for Christmas uh, and my family, we got this prime rib. So I took the prime rib, cracked open the ribs section, opened it like a car engine, laced it with bacon, closed it back, and then wound up the strings around it and put it on the trigger. Oh. My goodness, uh, I can't even begin to tell you how uh, uh, bacon uh, makes all things even more beautiful. So um, it's awesome. But all that to say, uh, as it turns out, bacon is not a kosher meat. It's something the Jews were forbidden to eat in the Old Testament. So how do you reconcile that? And, and really it's sad because there are people who use the Bible clumsily and sort of like to point to scriptures that are linked to the law of the Old Testament and try to superimpose that on New Testament times. And it makes people kind of look bad. Um, by the way, there's a lot of people who should die, whether it's the one-year-old kid. Um, you know, I'm surprised more people don't try to you know, do this, but once in a while you'll hear something, for example, the LGBTQ community saying, the Bible says you should take a homosexual out and kill them. Does it say that? Yep. And the Old Testament law of Moses. And, and so should the homosexual die? Yep. But so should the one-year-old child like me that should die because I was naughty. Do you understand? The Bible says pretty much everybody dies because of sin. That's the Old Testament law. That's the Old Covenant. And I'm here to tell you the Old Covenant, the New Covenant, the Old Covenant is inferior to the New. How can you say that, Brett? How can you say something that God created is inferior? The only way I can say that is guess what? God tells us that it's inferior, but it still serves a purpose. You gotta be careful not to throw the old covenant, the old law out the window saying, well, good thing we're no longer under the law, forget that. Andy Stanley, a couple years ago said, you know, some of you guys know him. He, he said, and in one of his sermons, he said, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. What a bummer. Man, I think any pastor that unhitches himself from the Old Testament, he should not be a pastor. I'm just saying it. Uh, you need to be a teacher of the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. The Old Testament is essential for us to understand the New Testament. And to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament law, I understand if you're saying we are no longer under that law, but the law of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant still serves a purpose. And we'll show you what that is today. And in Jeremiah, which is kind of interesting, Mr. Doom and Gloom, he's called the weeping prophet. He's the one that's you know, always saying, hey, you guys are gonna die and your bodies will be lying in the streets and birds of the air are gonna pluck your skin off your bones. No wonder they punched him in the face, poor Jeremiah. I mean, he had a tough message for the people in that day. It's because they were, they were doomed. They really were a doomed people. But I love that 
once in a while in the book of Jeremiah, we have these little bright lights of truth that are very redemptive and quite amazing. And this is one such passage. And every Christian, I believe, should be familiar with Jeremiah 31, 31, where we begin this discussion on the new covenant. So let's take a look at the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah uh, chapter 31, if you'd turn there with me. And in Jeremiah 31, 31, it says this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. We'll see later how he's gonna include the Gentiles as well. Verse 32, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break. Although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write in it in their hearts, and they will be, pardon me, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. There are several components to this new covenant that we'll go over here in a bit. But before we go into the components of this new covenant, a covenant, a promise, an agreement, like a business deal almost. The Lord says, I've got an old deal and a new deal, an old covenant and a new covenant. And the old covenant, well, that was given to you when the children of Israel left Egypt and went out to the Mount Sinai and Moses gave the law, the law of Moses, by the way. Um, not to be confused with the law of God. The law of God is the 10 commandments given on the two tables of stone. The law of Moses is the laws given to the Jews specifically uh, about their religious practices, what they could and couldn't eat, where they should go and what they should do on the Sabbath and how they should build a temple or a tabernacle and a sacrificial system and the priests and the Levites and the day of atonement and the high priest. All that was part of the old covenant law given to Moses there at Mount Sinai. And so here the Lord says, you guys have broken my old covenant. That's Jeremiah's day and they had. Not only were they not keeping the old covenant at all, but they were flying in the face of the old covenant and worshiping other gods and worshiping you know, Baal and Ashtoreth and Moloch and Chemosh and all these other gods and goddesses. They had thrown the, the old covenant out the window and they were headed for total destruction. That's what the old covenant does. It reveals that you can't do it, you can't keep it. And the Jews, guess what? They were the best foot forward. If you think you can keep the law, just ask a good Jew who's tried to keep the law. It's impossible. That's part of the thing, that's the whole deal. You say, well, why would God create something that you couldn't do? Well, there's a good question and I'm glad you asked. Galatians chapter three, uh, Pastor Paul. Uh, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees. What's that mean? Um, he, was, he was like the Jewish, most Jewish guy you'd ever did know. He knew the Old Testament law better than anyone. He was schooled by a guy named Gamaliel. That'd be like if you're a mathematician, you were being tutored at, at your home by Albert Einstein. Like Gamaliel was the best of the day, the smartest guy on the planet, and that was Paul's teacher. And that was his boast. I was schooled by Gamaliel. And everybody was like, wow. 
Paul knows his stuff. But Paul the apostle answers that question, what was the purpose of the old covenant when God knew he was gonna give us a new covenant? And is the old covenant, do we just throw it out the window and forget about it? Or is there value in knowing what the old covenant says because we are under this new covenant? And what is the new covenant? Well, that's what Paul answers. He gives us sort of the high level answer uh, starting in Galatians chapter three. Let's take a look at that. Would you turn there or jot it down in your notes real quick? Galatians 3, 21. And that's where Paul is gonna help us understand this. Now, the words for the covenant could be uh, number one, law, old law, or covenant or testament. Um, uh, sometimes it's called the first and the, some, the other one's called the second. Like that, when you read the New Testament, there's all kinds of language that defines the old covenant and the new, the Old Testament and the new. Um, and we'll see all that in Paul's writing here. So here in Galatians chapter three, verse 21, it says, is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, Verily, righteousness should have been by the law, but the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Now pause for a second, what's he saying? The law never brings life, it brings death, it condemns us. No one's good enough, no one is righteous, not even one, Paul would teach us and show us. So the law never saved anybody because the rules are too hard for us to, to um, survive. But the scriptures concluded all under sin, he says, we're all sinners, that the promise of faith through Jesus might be given to those who believe. Goes on in verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, here's what he tells us what the law does. The Old Testament, Old Covenant law, what does it do? Wherefore, verse 24, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Now pause for a second again, schoolmaster. Uh, could you picture a schoolmaster in your mind's eye? Some of you newer people, younger people, you don't know what a schoolmaster is. Um, I do. Uh, I went to, to a little school called Roosh Elementary School, basically Beaver Cleaver School. And I was in this little nice little happy school and then we moved to Applegate, Oregon, the thriving metropolis of Applegate, population four. And we went to this little one house schoolhouse, like really old, built in 1911, little red brick building with a bell, the whole thing. It was really, that's the school I went to. We moved to this, but the schoolmaster, who was he? Well, I've told you before, Mr. Alexander. He was the personification of the schoolmaster. He, he had a red paddle hanging on the wall. It was a two by four with a handle and he routed in the red paddle his name, Alexander. And legend has it, if you ever got spanked, he was permanently uh, imprinted on your behind. <laughs> I actually saw him use the big red is what he called the paddle. I saw him take a kid, drag him into the back room, whack, 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 and then he brought him out. Like it literally happened. Now you'd probably go to jail for this. But Mr. A was the most serious and grave of, of teachers. And he was always looking around. And, and I've told you, he had that you know, teacher pointer stick, but he would walk during tests. We'd be taking a test, all of us you know, frantically writing. And he would walk up and down the rows of the classroom and he'd take his teacher pointer and he would walk and he'd put the, the, the pointer up one nostril and sort of rest his head on that nostril. 
And as he'd walk around the classroom looking at us, he'd have that, and we'd just be like grossed out. We'd be taking, taking notes, you know, do, doing our tests. And if somebody were messing around or whatever, he'd take it out of his nostril and whack, he'd smack the desk and everybody in the room would jump. That's a true story. Now, I'm painting this picture of the schoolmaster. That's who he, who he really was. But it's so funny, as it turns out, after I got to know him, I was horrified the first few weeks of school at, at Applegate. But I ended up really loving Mr. A. He was probably one of my favorite teachers I ever did have. It really an amazing thing, that schoolmaster, Mr. A. But, but all that to say, that's what I picture. The Old Testament is the, 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 the old schoolmaster with a stick. And you think, ah! That's scary. Yep, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant is horrifying. You and I, we cannot keep it. We cannot do it. Nobody's ever been saved by the keeping of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And so what does it do? It drives you and I to something better. Run for your lives because the Old Covenant, it condemns us to sin. It condemns us to eternal death and hell. That's the Old Covenant. But it's got a purpose. The purpose is to drive you to move you uh, to the right place. Without it, you may not be driven to go to the right place. If you and I don't realize that we are under the law and, and that we would be dead if it weren't for the new covenant, we wouldn't know where to go. But the, the old covenant says, man, you're a sinner and you need salvation. By the way, this is one of the fatal mistakes people make when they're, when they're sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. They forget to bring this part up that you're a sinner and you're headed for death and hell and destruction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, not even one. If you fail to mention that, people don't need, they don't know what they need to be saved from. There's people that they, they say, oh, you, you want me to be a Christian? Why, why should I be a Christian? Well, because you get to go to church. That's, that's no fun. Uh, why? Because you'll make friends at church. I already have friends. Uh, why? Because you'll be victorious and you'll live a victorious life already living victoriously. Like, like the, the, the reasons people give for the gospel are so wacko, it's not even funny. The reason the gospel is there is because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, not even one. And the wages of sin is death eternal. And that is whoosh, the schoolmaster that drives us. Man, get me out of here. I don't want to be a part of the old covenant because no one was ever saved by keeping the old. But once the schoolmaster has done his job, did you see what it says? Verse 25, but after faith is come, that's the new covenant, the faith, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Let's, let's read on and finish up this in Galatians 3, 26. For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The old covenant was given to the Jews, but they failed and they were driven also by the schoolmaster. But when you become a believer in the greatest Jew that ever lived, Jesus Christ, who was a Jew, and died on the cross for the sins of the world, by faith we get to be brought in, no longer um, at war with each other even. I love how the gospel of Jesus brings us all together. You know, racism is a problem in the world today, of course. But I wanna tell you that racism ends where the gospel of Jesus Christ begins. 
Man, that's something people should know. Well, Brett, I've heard a pastor say, uh, you know, that, that uh, why is Sunday morning hour the most segregated hour in, in, um, and during the week? Have you heard that one? That, that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour. And, 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 and I think they, they might look at a, a church, you know, and say, how many black people, how many white people? And they're, they're all talking about that. Race is kind of a big issue today. But can I just say something that they're, that's the person who doesn't know their Bible. I'm gonna say that the, the church of Jesus Christ is the most diverse and amazing uh, group of people on the planet. And guess what? You know, they try to limit it to a building and a group of people in a building, but it's not about that. The building has nothing to do with it. Who, who is the church? Paul says this, he says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Jew or Greek is a way of saying Jew or Gentile, or we're talking about the race of Jew, Jews and everybody who's not a Jew. He, say there's, he even says there's not male nor female. It's not that you know, uh, God's into us losing our gender identity or gender, gender dysphoria or any of that. He's just saying in the church, there's no longer these artificial walls between race, gender, bond or free, rich or poor. We're all one body in Christ. We're brothers and sisters in Christ under the new covenant. You see, I believe if we wanna solve the problems of racism, um, you need to come and see Jesus, know Jesus, accept Jesus and the work of the cross. That's where we all come together. And there's no difference between us. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. I love that. Um, and and I, I've, I've been around the world. You know, I've been to church services in Burkina Faso, Africa and Ouagadougou where the church was packed full. And I was the only white guy in the whole building. I might've been the only white guy for hundred miles. I don't know. But it was the most amazing worship service um, now, did I fit in? Not really. I didn't even know how to clap to their songs. Um, like it was so amazing. They had these goombe drums and they would play the drums and sing to the Lord and it was loud and it was celebratory. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And my ears were ringing for like four days after that church service, but it was awesome. But for me to try to sort of duplicate that would be weird. And so what I found out and what I realized is, wow, there's people of all different races and people all over the world that believe in Jesus and they're all part of our church family. And we're all, we all different flavors and certain church buildings have different flavors and different styles of ministry and all that. That's great. But the church is about as diverse as it gets. I love that racially. Don't make, don't listen to all these, these, you know, pastors that are trying to be relevant, talking about you know, white fragility and, and all this stuff. That's ridiculous. Um, we need to come together around Jesus Christ where we're all sinners, we've all messed up and we need to be saved from our sins. And that's what brings us together. We, we, we are one in Christ once we become part of the body of Christ. Jew, Gentile, Greek, whatever race, creed, gender, we all come together around Jesus. Well, that's, that's basically Paul saying in Galatians three, here it is. But here's, that's sort of the entry level uh, about this new covenant, the old covenant, the new covenant. If you wanna read a, the best commentary on um, the old covenant versus the new, Jeremiah 31, um, what's the best commentary on the Bible, anybody? The Bible, good, you guys got that. Um, and there's actually a specific section of the Bible that is a commentary on the new covenant. It's Hebrews chapter eight, nine, and 10. Those three chapters of the book of Hebrews gives you a perfect description of what's the deal with the old covenant and what's the deal with the new. Would you, you can jot these notes down, these scripture references down. I'm not gonna read all three chapters, I'm tempted. 
it's, it's, it's powerful and it helps you understand. But let me just give you some of the high points, some of my favorite parts of the commentary, Hebrews eight through 10. In Hebrews chapter eight, verse one, the author of Hebrews, and by the way, I think it's possibly Paul himself who wrote Hebrews. Couldn't die on that battlefield, but I do believe it's possible that Paul wrote Hebrews. Some people say no, um, but uh, either way, it's, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, Hebrews chapter eight, verse one, he says, now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum or the sum, I'm about to sum up something. He's gonna sum up the old covenant versus the new. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in, in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. That's a key. In comparing the old covenant and the new, one of the things we'll see is the old covenant was man's doings. New covenant is God's doings. Old covenant, man built a tabernacle. New covenant, Jesus is our tabernacle. Old covenant, man had a high priest that would go in once a year on Yom Kippur, go into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle blood. Hopefully sins of the people were forgiven. Day of atonement, that was old covenant. New covenant, Jesus is our high priest. Going into the Holy of Holies, which he is the Holy of Holies. What's one of the first things that happened when Jesus died on the cross? The veil of the Holy of Holies, the temple ripped in two. What's, have you ever wondered what's that all about? Old covenant, new covenant. Old covenant, if you wanted atonement, we'll talk about that word in a second. You had to wait for the Yom Kippur, day of atonement where the high priest Aaron would go into the Holy of Holies and then he'd come out and he'd reach out to Israel and say, your sins are forgiven and everybody'd celebrate once a year. But when Jesus, our high priest, better than Aaron, he died on the cross for the sins of the world, there's no longer a barrier where only the priest could be in the Holy of Holies. Why? Because the new covenant lets us enter in by a new and living way. I'll tell you about that in a second. So this is the first thing he says, you know, we have a high priest, uh, the minister, Jesus, who, you know, pitches his tent of the tabernacle field, but it's not made with man's hands. That's the idea. Let's fast forward to verse six, Hebrews 8, 6. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. And then if you read on, verses nine through the end, there is a repeat of Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. The author of Hebrews says, I'm talking about the, old, the, the, the new covenant mentioned in, in, in our text, Jeremiah 31, 31. Are you guys still with me here? So that's what this author is saying. He's saying, it's all about this new covenant. And he then recites the new covenant. But notice he says the old covenant was, was full of fault. Question, see if we're catching on here. What was the fault? What was the problem with, what was the biggest failure of the old covenant? Anybody? What? No one could ever be saved by it. It's a covenant that was required two parties that had to keep their agreement, God and the Jews. And they both had to keep their side of the bargain, but no one, not one of the Jews, were able to keep that, their side of the bargain. Um, and so because of that, it was faulty. No one ever was saved by the covenant. 
So the Lord says, I'm gonna intervene. And I'm gonna show you, now that you know that you can't do it by yourself, keep your side of the bargain, I'm gonna make a new covenant. And the old one was full of fault, you were involved. But the new covenant's gonna be faultless, only I am gonna be involved, the Lord would say. That's where we're going with this. Look at chapter nine, verse one of Hebrews. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances, those are laws, of divine service and a worldly sanctuary or a practical physical sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made. First there was a candlestick, table, showbread, sanctuary. And he goes on and talks about the ark and what was in the ark of the covenant and in the Holy of Holies. He describes the furniture of the tabernacle that was made with hands of man. And he said, that's the first covenant. But then look at verse 11 as we go on of chapter nine. But Christ being come as a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. What's this? Jesus was our high priest. And instead of a, a lamb dying on the altar in the Holy of Holies being sprinkled by the high priest, Jesus, the high priest shed his own blood and he went into the Holy of Holies, if you would, and, and did that work for us. Look at verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Man, isn't that something? So we have this, this um, the, the old physical temple and the sacrificial system and the priesthood, but Jesus is better. And he did this, not bringing a lamb, but he is the lamb, the high priest who shed his own blood. Look at verse 22. This is something the Jews knew. Verse 22 of chapter nine. And almost all things are by law purged or cleansed with the blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. See, the Jews that live in Jerusalem today, the ones that are religious Jews or whatever, um, I always like to ask them as I'm walking down the streets of Jerusalem and I'll talk to the various Jewish people, I'll say, how are you guys dealing with your sins? And it's an interesting thing. And I've noticed that most of the time the Jews there, they kind of blush and they look down and say, well, we pray, we pray. But I, but I say, but, but that's not really what the, the, the Hebrew Bible, your, your Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. Well, we hope to build the temple someday again in Jerusalem and we'll have sacrificial system restored. I'm like, yeah, that's gonna happen according to the Bible, but, but what do you do now? And the answer, they don't have an answer. They say, well, we just pray. But without the shedding of blood, there's no, there's no sacrifice. See, and that's the thing, what the Jews largely miss today. And by the way, God still has a plan for the Jews. He loves the Jewish people. He has not forsaken them as some people try to say. But there's gonna come a day where Romans chapter 11, just verse 25 says that when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, all of Israel's gonna be saved. They're gonna see that Jesus is their Messiah, <clears throat> that Jesus is the lamb that would be slain for the sins of the world, including the Jews and the Gentiles. <clears throat> but right now, blindness has happened to the Jews. They don't see Jesus as the Messiah. That's Romans 9, 10, and 11. That's a commentary on the Jews and the Gentiles. But, but this, this is basically what, what you know, we're learning here. Look at verse 24. 
for Christ of chapter nine, for Christ has not entered into holy places made with hands, which are, listen, figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. What's Christ doing right now? He's our defense attorney standing before the throne of God as our, uh, he's for us. Aren't you glad Jesus is for us and not against us? He's standing there for us. And he does, he does that. All these, he says, all these things happen not with a tabernacle that's physical, but spiritual. And these Old Testament covenants are figures. The word could be types, illustrations, examples of the New Testament truth of the new covenant. See, if you, if you say, well, whatever, I don't like the old covenant laws and rules. You can't eat bats. You can't eat pork. You can't get a tattoo. That old covenant, forget that stuff, Brad. We don't need to talk about that. No, you have to understand the old covenant is a illustration in a picture book that teaches us all kinds of truths about the new covenant. And they're, they're figurative that point to the literal that Jesus would come and die on the cross for the sins of the world. Um, let me just show you a few more verses. I know it's, it's tedious going through all these, but um, look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse one, continues that discussion. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, that's the figures and the types, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the, uh, the comers thereof unto perfect. In other words, the old covenant, they, they could come all day long with their sacrifices, but they'd still be sinful. But verse four, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Verse five, wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, sacrifice and offering, thou wouldst prepare us not. But a body, whose body? A body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast no pleasure. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. Who's saying this? Guess what? The sacrifice, Jesus the Messiah. He's saying, I have come in the volume of the book. It's all about me. The Old Testament sacrifices and the lamb slain on the altar, that's pointing to Jesus. The candlestick in the middle holy place there, Jesus. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am the vine, you are the branches. The table of showbread, that's Jesus. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Uh, we could just go on and on. The Old Testament, Old Covenant points to Jesus, the New Covenant. And that's what he's saying here. I come in the volume of the book. It's all written about me, Jesus. Verse eight, almost done here. Verse eight, above when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He, check this out. He taketh away the first, the first covenant, the first testament, that he may establish the second, the second covenant, the second testament. Verse 10, by the which we, uh, well, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What's this? The greatest part of the new covenant, in my opinion, is that it's not the system that you have to just keep doing over and over and over again to make sure your sins are dealt with. But Jesus, our lamb, not the Old Testament lambs of the tabernacle or of the temple, but our lamb Jesus died once for all sin. Why did that work for all? Because he was the perfect Messiah. He was the perfect lamb of God. Remember when John the Baptist was there at the Jordan River? He said, 
Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of some of the world? Nope, the whole world. Jesus died on the cross once for all. The old covenantal system, you had to, every time you sinned, you had to bring a lamb or a bird or a bull or however wealthy you were, you were supposed to bring sort of a commensurate uh, sacrifice based on who you were and what your sins were. And man, people, you know, by the millions, animals were slaughtered as a picture of the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus, who would die for the sins of the world. The old covenant was all about you doing the right thing so that your sins would be dealt with. The new covenant is all about what he did, what Jesus Christ did on the cross. The new covenant. Now, I know it's getting late fast, so I gotta get on to these things. Let's talk, just let's finish up with this. The five key components to the new covenant. Are you guys ready? Here we go. Number one, if you're jotting them down, uh, component number one uh, on our list of things here to, to see in the new covenant. Component number one, the promise of God's intervention. The promise of God's intervention. The old covenant was all about you and me keeping laws and Jews keeping laws, which we couldn't do. So then God says, I will intervene. I will step in and fix the problem. The old covenant was insufficient because nobody ever was saved. So I'm gonna have to step in and do it myself. And praise the Lord, he does that. And that's what it says in the very first part, Jeremiah 31, 31. I will, by the way, he says I will, depending on whether you're reading from Hebrews or uh, Jeremiah, the, the new covenant. He says five times or six times, he says, I will do this. Nothing about you will. It's all about what the Lord himself does. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So the promise is that God will intervene on behalf of us. We couldn't save ourselves, so God steps in. Um, by the way, in Exodus chapter uh, 24, <laughs> verse three, when the, when the law was given, do you remember what the people said after the law of Moses was given? It's Exodus 24, three. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, that's the law, old covenant, and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord hath said, we will do. Did they do it? Not even close. Um, that's you and me. Lord, I'll be good this year. I'm gonna make a New Year's resolution and I, I will read my Bible every day in 2021. And then January 2nd comes and you're like, oh, I forgot to read my Bible. <laughs> What's up with that? Well, praise the Lord, we're under the new covenant. And we, you know, the Bible says the spirit is oftentimes willing, but the flesh becomes weak. And the Jews proved that century after century. They said, we will do everything that the law tells us to do. But did they do it? The answer is no. So Jesus is the one that we look to who did it. He perfectly fulfilled. In the new covenant, it's not about what you do, it's about what he did. The new covenant is not a two-sided agreement. The new covenant is a one-sided agreement. God says, Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna make you a deal you can't refuse. Years ago, we had a van that was donated to the church. It was like a minivan. It was a nice little minivan. And we used it for a little while, but it didn't really serve our purposes well because we needed like bigger trailers and bigger vans and stuff. So, so we decided, hey, let's, let's sell it and we'll get a few extra bucks from this van that was donated to the church. It was great. Um, and, you know, it had a lot of miles on it, but it was still in good condition. So we put it on, on Craigslist, you know, and sold it. 
But um, I remember one summer afternoon, um, I walked out of the church office and uh, this little family was looking at the van. And I, I realized we put it on Craigslist for, you know, three or 4,000 bucks or whatever. And, um, and, and I just kind of walked out and I was, started talking to this family. And one of our uh, maintenance guys, they were there doing the deal and talking to this family. And, and, um, and the family, I, I found out that they were actually freshly back from being missionaries for the last 10 years in the Philippines. And they were this family that really, they had nothing. And they said, oh, you're the pastor. They said, pastor, you know, I'm sorry. We, we, we probably shouldn't even have come looked at this van because all we have is $1,500. And uh, your van is $4,000. I think it was three or 4,000 bucks. And, and I said, listen, I'm gonna make you a deal you can't refuse. And, uh, and they said, well, seriously, if 1,500 is all we have. And I said, how about free? And the little kids looked at their mom and dad and they started jumping down. We have a minivan, we have a minivan. And, and, and they all started weeping and stuff. And it was really cool because they were in real need of transportation. They didn't have anything. And it was so cool to be able to, to be more new covenant. Old covenant would have been the, the law of saying you owe you know, the $3,000. I'm not just letting this go for nothing. That's old covenant. New covenant is me stepping in, getting to be like Jesus saying, Take it, it's free, it's a free gift, it's yours. Sign over the, the title deed and off you go. And you did nothing to earn it, to deserve it, but you got it for free. That's new covenant. That's how you and I get to heaven. Well, um, you know, it's John Flavel, that old preacher from old who said, classic, I, I, this is a good way of putting it. He says, if he has finished the work, which he has, what need is there for our additions? Do people always try to add to the work of the cross? Well, you need to be saved and... Go to church every Sunday, give to the church, do this or that or the other, then you can be saved. Nope, it's only Christ. Christ died on the cross for your sins. He did the work, he said, it is finished. So Flavel says, if he has finished the work, what need is there of our additions? And if not, if he didn't finish the work, to what purpose are they? Can we finish that which Christ himself could not complete? In other words, if he couldn't finish it? Did he finish the work? And will he ever divide the glory and the praise of it with us? No, no, Christ is no half savior. I love what he's saying there. This preacher knows what he's talking about. He's saying, you know, Christ, he did the whole thing. He finished the work. He's not a half savior, he's the savior. You and I can't add anything to what Jesus did on the cross. That's God intervening, stepping in on you know, humanity's horrible plight. Well, that brings us to point number two. Not only um, do we see that God, he has a promise of intervening, God's promise of intervention. Number two, the promise of internal change. The new covenant brings something different than the Old Testament. The people of the Old Testament didn't have a personal relationship with God. There were only a tiny handful of people that did. But largely, there was something different, Old Testament and New. And, and one of the biggest things is an internal change with our relationship with the Lord. He says, the difference is in the New Covenant, he says, I will put my law not on tables of stone or the law of Moses, the scrolls of the book, not that. He says, I will put my law in their inward parts and I will write it in their hearts. You know, Ezekiel gives us maybe even a better understanding of that when we look at what Ezekiel the prophet says. He says, then I will sprinkle clean water upon you. This is all new covenant stuff. And you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from your idols. I will cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you. A new spirit will I put within you. 
and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. What's Ezekiel talking about? He's talking about someday, people of Israel, you're gonna enjoy the new covenant where I'm gonna write on your hearts and put my spirit within you and give you a new heart, not of stone, but of flesh where you'll, your heart will be connected to the Lord himself and you'll know what to do. Guess what? You and I, we live in new covenant times. We have a personal relationship with God in that we know Jesus Christ. That's one of the most beautiful things of the new covenant is it's a personal relationship with Christ. And, and really Peter talks about that at the very end of this, just for speed. He says there in the middle of this, he says, whereby you are given unto us exceeding and great precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped corruption that is in the world through lust. What, what's this divine nature? Some people, new agers try to make something out of this that's not. Uh, do we have the divine nature? Are we gods in ourselves? That's ridiculous. But what happens is when you become a Christian, the spirit of God fills you and his divine nature is then spoken into your life because this new covenant, there's an internal change. Jesus talked about this with his disciples in John 14 and John 16, he said this. He said, it's good that I'm gonna leave you, or expedient, the King James says. It's expedient, it's good that I'm gonna leave you. And the disciples, why is that good that you're leaving us? And Jesus said, because I'm gonna send after me, I'm gonna send my comforter, capital C, the Holy Spirit. And he will remind you of truth. And he'll, the idea is he'll speak into your lives. You'll have this relationship with the Holy Spirit in you. That's what Peter's talking about here. That's what Ezekiel was talking about there. So you have the promise of an internal change, a new relationship. Moses talked to God face to face in the Old Testament, but that was like one of the few guys that got to do that. You and I as Christians, we get to talk to God face to face and have a personal relationship with him. Point number three, uh, you know, characteristic of the new covenant, number three, the promise of a personal relationship. For they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, saith the Lord. You can be the poorest person in the world, but you get to know the Lord personally. Um, that's one of the components of the new covenant. Up until the new covenant, there was a need to have a priest and a mediator that would mediate between you and the Lord. By the way, I think that some of the priests of modern day churches, should we have priests today that are mediators between God and man? Um, I know that some of you were raised maybe in Catholic traditions or Episcopal traditions and, and you think, yeah, we well, need a priest and a mediator and we need to pray to the, the saints or do this or that. But you know what? The Bible makes it clear um, that Jesus is now the mediator under the new covenant. Um, you know, uh, in, in Hebrews, our commentary on this, Hebrews 9, 13 through 15, listen to this. For the blood of bulls and of goats, the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctify it through the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, of the new covenant. Who's the mediator of the new covenant? Jesus Christ himself, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that we were under the first testament, first covenant, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. How do we have a promise of eternal inheritance? We are restored 
to good relationship with God through our mediator, Jesus Christ. Um, how do we know that a priest is not the mediator uh, between God and man? Well, the answer, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse five, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. So you can forget having mediators uh, in the church. Jesus is the mediator. Well, it's a pastor. Brother, should we fire you? Well, as it turns out, the church has offices, but none of them are where I'm the mediator between you and God. That's never supposed to be my role. I get to teach the Bible. Um, you know, the difference between you and me uh, might be that uh, I'm in the hospital too, just like you, only I've been there longer. I know where the jello is and where the restrooms are. Um, <laughs> that's the only difference. Uh, and so I'll show you where the jello is. And for me, uh, I love being that, but I'm not a mediator. And our elders and our pastors, they're not mediators. We will point you to the mediator, Jesus Christ. That's the goal. Number four, component of the new covenant, the promise of God's mercy. And oh, I should probably have talked about this the whole time and almost said nothing else because this is the greatest news of all. Mercy, what is mercy? Not getting what you deserve. And if you deserve to be crushed, and then somebody's merciful to you, they're showing you mercy, you deserve to be crushed, but because of mercy, you're not being crushed. You and I deserve to be given death and hell for all eternity, but because the Lord in his new covenant, not with bulls and rams and sacrifices and all that stuff, but the Lord just says, because of my promise, I will forgive their iniquity. That's what he says, that's being merciful. And guess what, how much does this, some of you might think, well, God's mercy must run out. We're gonna run out of God's mercy. I've, I've sinned too much. Question, quiz time for you Christians. How long does the Lord's mercy endure? Forever. The Bible says that over and over and over again. His mercy endures forever, over and over again. Um, so the promise of God's mercy, that's new covenant. And then number five on the list, last but not least, the promise of God's justification. We've already read that word in the commentary on the new covenant, Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, where he used that word justification. And, and the word justification is the doctrine of when God shows you mercy and forgives your sins, it says, I will remember your sins no more. It's as it's never happened. In God's economy, your sins, the worst things you've ever done, as it turns out, God says, guess what? I don't even remember them. I can always in my mind's eye picture me standing at the gates of heaven and the Lord saying what he says he's gonna say, Brett, Enter in, thou good and faithful servant. And I'll be thinking, yeah, but Lord, what about that time I did this? What about the time I did that? What about my doubts and my, the, the things I said that were mean and those sermons that I gave that were kind of off course a little bit? Lord, what about all that? And the Lord says, I don't even remember those sermons, just like your congregation. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding, just mess with you guys. I remember your sins no more. Aren't you glad that God uh, has that ability? I wished I had that ability to forget things. I found that human nature, we're opposite of God. We remember the things we don't wanna remember and we forget the things we do wanna remember. You know that song that gets in your head and it's over and over and you just can't get out of your head, you just keep remembering, Friday, Friday. Ah. Remember that song? That was a few years back. That was brutal. I just put it in your minds and now you can't get it out because you're not God. But the Lord remembers our sins no more. He's able to say, you know what, Brett, that sin you just did, it's gone, I don't remember it. 
I love that. That's called justification. You can remember the doctrine of justification by this little phrase, just as if you'd never sinned at all. That's what it is. That's the new covenant. The old covenant, remembered. And if you, you know, if you sinned, he was like Santa. He takes his list, checks it twice, and he's gonna find out he's naughty and nice. Santa, move the letters around Satan, same, little red suit. I'm just saying. No, I'm, I'm just messing around. But God is not the one who's keeping that list. Under the new covenant, if you accept and believe Jesus, if you confess with your mouth and believe that Jesus died on the cross for sins that you choose to repent from, you say, I repent of my sins. That means to acknowledge your sin before the Lord and say, Lord, I am deserving of death because of my sin. And here are the sins that I've committed. Lord, I acknowledge that before you. And I confess my faith that Jesus died once for all on the cross for my sins. That's the new covenant. See, the thing I love about the new covenant is this justification and mercy comes by just confession with the mouth and belief in the heart. Romans 9, 10 and 11. Romans chapter nine, verses 10 and 11 tells us that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus Christ, that God raised him up from the dead, you will be saved. So when people say, yeah, but I didn't do anything except for just believe, exactly. The new covenant is based on him and him alone. Just like that family that got the car, they did nothing. They just stood there and said, we need a car. And I said, it's yours. And we as a church got to give it to them. That was great. That's exactly what the Lord says. I don't demand anything of you except for this, a confession of faith. May the Lord give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say. Because if you're a Christian, the new covenant is one of the most glorious truths. And I hope that not only you can know what I just shared, but that you can share it and articulate the new covenant to other people as well. Because there's a lot of misnomers about the old covenant and the new, and it'll make it, make it so much easier. You understand a bit of doctrine when you understand the old versus the new covenant. And if you're a Christian, man, we can walk away just rejoicing because we are under the new covenant. Amen? Amen, let's pray together. Lord, how thankful I am for the new covenant, the promise, that you will intervene on behalf of all humanity, Lord. The promise that you will change us internally and write your will on the table of our hearts, Lord. Thankful for that. The promise for that personal relationship that you wanna give to us, that you wanna know us and that we can know you and the promise of your mercy and the promise of your justification. Lord, these things are so great. And I pray that this coming year, as people make New Year's resolutions, Lord, we, we know it's not about our resolutions, it's about your covenant that you made. For when we fail and when we sin, we know that you died on the cross for our sins, once for all. And so we have salvation by your grace. If you would just keep an attitude of prayer. And I wonder if there might be some of you watching online or some of you that are here in the building today who have not accepted the new covenant. You've not accepted the free gift the new plan. Maybe you're still thinking old plan. I need to be better. I should start going to church. Maybe I'll go to heaven. Maybe I need to do this. No, that's old covenant. And you will fail with that one. But the new covenant, it's there for the taking. The Lord says, I've done it all. I did the work on the cross to die for the sins of the world. And so that confession goes something like this. And if you want, you can do it right where you're at, at your house or here in this room. You can just say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I repent of my sins. I acknowledge my sins before you. 
And then just pray this, Lord, I, I believe in your son, Jesus. And you can't just say it. It's not a magical incantation. It's gotta be something that you, you choose to say, I'm gonna believe this. So you believe with your heart, confess with your mouth, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That he rose up from the grave and then say, Lord, thanks for saving me. You might even ask, Lord, help me to walk with you as a Christian. Start to change those things in me. Write on my heart your will. Show me what to do. And the Lord will, he'll do that. Lord, for these people who are just thinking through this and confessing a faith in you, Lord, I pray that you would just bless them with your love, flood their soul, Lord, with the knowledge of how merciful, how giant your grace is and how magnificent your mercy is. Lord, may they know how forgiving you are as a God. And for a new year, Lord, we need new life. We need old things to be passed away. We want all things to become new. And we know, Lord, the new covenant does that. So thank you. Thank you for saving us. May we all rejoice in what you did for us. In Jesus' name.